Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to today's episode of the HS Podcast. Joining James, Nathan and I today is Callum Bramley from Respond. Callum, why don't you start off by introducing yourself? Absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, So my background throughout my teens, I always wanted to be a professional athlete. Uh, But since then, I studied robotics at the University of Reading and really started to focus on artificial intelligence and deep learning machine vision as well. Throughout that time, I started to work for a couple of different companies, uh, one called National Instruments based in Reading, and also Huawei over in Beijing for a couple of months as well. And it was through those jobs that I started to see kind of new and exciting technology and how machine vision was being used throughout the industry, but wasn't really starting to be used for kind of more customer facing applications or people could use within the public. And it was around that time at about 2015 uh, that my granddad had a stroke. And I realized that he was struggling with recognizing the people and objects around him. And I started to develop an app that was able to utilize those technologies that I'd seen through those different roles and throughout my degree in robotics uh, that were really able to help him. And then from there, started to do the market research and realized that this is a global problem. And out of that uh, came Respond. We obviously had uh, the guys from Febris on last week, um, Adam and Alina, uh, and we wanted to get you on this week because uh, computer vision, uh, machine learning, and some of the technology you're using uh, is quite a nice uh, follow-on from what they were talking about in the AI space around preventive and predictive healthcare. <laughs> so let's, let's jump into what the people who are listening who might not know very much about um, machine vision, computer vision. What is it and, and why is it helpful to people with dementia? So machine vision is being able to use a camera and letting artificial intelligence be able to almost describe or interpret what that image is. So for dementia patients in particular, uh, there seems to be a lot of symptoms around memory loss um, and difficulty performing familiar tasks like putting a kettle on 
or picking up a phone and phoning a relative. And what this app allows is for you to be able to take a picture and use that artificial intelligence to be able to firstly tell the patient what it is and then how they could use it in the future. And this starts with just objects, but it could also be people as well. So being able to recognize your friends and relatives just by taking a picture of them and then letting the apps tell you who that is and what their relation is to you. Cool. And you've um, obviously we know you very well. You've got a very cool backstory as to why you chose uh, to work on this. Obviously, you come from a, a non-medical background originally. Um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about why you chose this to work on? Yeah, of course. I think that with the healthcare space at the minute and how there seems to be a lot of talk about innovation and utilizing these new technologies, it kind of helps sometimes to come in from a completely fresh perspective and analyze it um, almost externally. So for myself in particular, uh, my granddad had a stroke back in 2015 and he started off with uh, very little motor skills but was able to kind of build himself back up. But he was still struggling with uh, kind of recognizing the people around him and especially myself, my brother and my dad because we all look the same. We all sound the same, we're all the same height as well. And it was incredibly frustrating for him. He couldn't um, understand which one was which, effectively. And for himself, coming from a mining background, he was very uh, independent. He, as I say, got incredibly frustrated by this. So from these applications that I'd seen in my past, kind of throughout my degree and working with a few tech companies prior to this, I saw that there was a gap in the market for you to be able to build an app that's able to recognize people and recognize objects and give that independence back to the user without them having to constantly say who is this um, and kind of rely on other people it's it's a massive problem um when we talk about dementia in general i think it's it's worthwhile just informing any listeners particularly investors who, who might not know much about the medical side of dementia but uh, essentially to give a sort of lay overview, dementia is a syndrome, normally um, a group of sort of chronic or progressive uh, diseases in nature that affect memory, thinking, behaviour, and essentially the ability to perform everyday tasks. Uh, and it's a huge problem globally. So I think there's around about 47 million uh, people um, suffering with dementia globally at the moment, um, and that's predicted to rise to around about 75 million by 2030. So it, it's, it's an enormous, enormous problem. And obviously, patients affected have different stages and, and sit at different positions along that spectrum of dementia. Uh, where do you see your app and your solution being most useful and, and to which user groups in particular? I think it works really well for the early stages. So when you're first diagnosed or even struggling uh, at just a kind of a very early age, almost at kind of 50s and 60s even, this app will be incredibly useful uh, for using around the house um, and also kind of in day-to-day -day life. I think as well, when it gets to the later stages where you start to need um, kind of a, a full-time carer, it's not as applicable. But I think at these early stages where the care isn't up to scratch yet, it's not as, um, it's not as well designed. It could be a fantastic way of almost promoting self care effectively well that's absolutely right and i think one of the the most important things with dementia is 
obviously early diagnosis and picking it up early. So uh, if you're able to diagnose dementia early, you can optimize physical health, cognition, um, activity and well-being for patients. Uh, and you can also provide information and long term support for any carers, because this isn't a disease that just affects an individual. Uh, this is something that affects entire families, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and then also carers and uh, the global economy. So uh, I think the overall economic impact for, for global dementia is something around you know, 820 billion US dollars per year, which is absolutely enormous. It's an incredibly high number. I was shocked when I first started researching this and saw how high the number is just for caring for people just in the UK, let alone globally. With what you're doing, what's your, I suppose, what's your tagline uh, for Respond? What's, what's the main goal? It's an artificial intelligent app to help dementia patients, but then linked within there, is this ability to take some of the workload off carers so that they're not constantly having to tell people exactly who they are and what an object is and does. It's more about kind of improving efficiency and not letting uh, those carers having to deal with such a huge workload when they themselves might have jobs to go to, they might need to support other members of the family, they might have children to take care of. It's uh, it's just limiting that workload a little bit and helping. As you said, as you said before, Callum, as well, it's it's enabling those carers to actually care as well by almost giving those patients. I think, as you said before, their independence back. I think that's probably the the coolest bit for me is that it's got that sort of double header effect, doesn't it? The the patient gets their independence; they can go and you know recognize objects again. They don't have to ask those silly questions that that they might feel you know nervous or embarrassed about. And then again, because the carer isn't having to do that all the time. You know, they're given the chance to actually care and, and do the things that um, yeah they need to do elsewhere, which is quite cool. Yeah, it could just be as simple as like making themselves a cup of tea or um, or using a shower even. Just being able to like look at something and not have that instant confusion yeah. of saying, I have no idea what this is for. Just just the listeners, Callum, just tell 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 the listeners what, what you told us about your granddad and the, the cricket ball. Of course, yes. Um so after he had a stroke and kind of um, coming back and kind of rehabilitating afterwards, he was struggling, as I say, with um, understanding what different objects did and what they were called. And there was a couple of examples where he was looking at a TV remote and calling it incredibly um, random names. And I think the best one was a cricket ball. And he just looked at it and sort of almost laugh to himself knowing that that's not what it's called but just <laughs> having his wires crossed a little bit at that stage you can see can't you even in that that you know he's, he's almost laughing to himself because he, he knows in that situation and, and you know thankfully he isn't feeling embarrassed or anything at that sort of stage but you can certainly see how it leads to that and and people getting going from that you know I suppose mildly humorous to actually then incredibly frustrating and then you can see how it causes such a problem and why the app's just so necessary I think he was incredibly lucky even with how he was able to rehabilitate very, very quickly and recover. But yeah. if you compare that to the wider market, the level of symptoms only gets sort of higher and kind of more complex from there on in. And I think if you can help patients with this app that, although designed incredibly simply, uses incredibly complex technology and have that at their fingertips, it can really benefit people uh, not only from an early stage, but getting into the the medium stages of uh, dementia as well. 
obviously we know a little bit about your journey and and how you came um to hs and and, and stuff but do you, can you just run through kind of how you went from idea to product and then what 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 you did from there and and then how you got to us yeah of course so i started seeing uh, machine vision applications when i was in beijing working for huawei the phone company and that was around my second or third year of university and when it came to looking at my dissertation I suddenly realized that you could utilize that same technology, uh, but for dementia patients. And I was integrating it into kind of almost a computer prototype where you could use the webcam and it would be able to use uh, online APIs for machine vision and artificial intelligence and deep learning from now on in. And it was incredibly clunky, but it worked. You could scan anybody's face, upload it to a database, and also for objects as well and it was spotted by somebody that i used to work with who suggested that i enter into a competition uh, called the global engineering impact awards and incredibly it placed third in the entire globe effectively and flew out over to texas to go and present about it at a huge conference and from there i met uh, pete davies a entrepreneur based in london and through there, make yourself, James. And that's mm. how I ended up kind of linking up with you guys at HS. And since then, picked up a number of awards again for how this is developed from there on in. Again, this, this shows how you can kind of put an MVP together that's clunky, that has some of the, the functions that you need to demonstrate what you're proposing and how far you can get with that. Absolutely. I think it's having that basic functionality to show uh, even if it's saying, look, this is an incredibly simplistic UI design. And on top of that, we're using these incredible algorithms that are able to be then utilized in mobile apps. From there on in, you can then quite easily design um, mobile apps for Android and iPhone uh, just using YouTube tutorials, which is what I did. And teach yourself over a course of three to six months on how to code an app. Great advice, and uh, I suggest anyone applying for HS in the future do do a bit of self learning, get something together, so when you come in, we can clearly see what you what you're proposing. One of the things we said, I think, it was on the back on the the very first podcast we did actually was don't need to spend the huge amount of money on creating an MVP. You certainly shouldn't be outsourcing your MVP, in my opinion. You you want a really good, technologically sound, lean founding team who can create this product, iterate it in the early stages for minimal costs. And that's exactly what, what Callum's demonstrated. I mean, how much, how much do you, did you actually spend creating this, do you think, Callum? Uh, in terms of time or money? Let's go for money first and then time. <laughs> Absolutely zero pounds, but uh, in terms of time, <laughs> a hell of a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, uh, but I mean, I, I think, um, uh, again, we, we've said this before, investing in yourself so spending money spending your own time and learning all these skills as you've done either through university or in your own time as we know you've done extensively is absolutely invaluable um, and even if you don't take it to the level that you do uh, people who are coming to us in uh, ceo roles or product or domain experts they need to have a knowledge of the underlying technology and the best way to do that is roll your sleeves up do the work and learn about it by doing uh, is is what we recommend people should do with, with regards to the computer vision aspect, 
what are what are some of the technical difficulties that that you have seen and, and run into i think the quality of an image is a huge factor because that is your sole input effectively into any algorithm from there on in and if you can almost standardize an image it would be incredibly helpful but for this particular application you're looking at images that have different backgrounds it could be blurry different camera angles different lighting and that makes it incredibly complex to do and a couple of the early examples that i had um was just looking at the kind of the point of interest effectively of that image so i had a mug and i just wanted the uh the MVP at that point to just recognize that it was a mug or a cup or some form of vessel. But it ended up picking up the bike that was on the mug and telling me uh, the make, the model and the year that that bike was made instead of just saying that it was a mug. <laughs> um, so you can face a couple of problems with uh, machine vision, definitely, with just where to focus your point of interest. But it's definitely doable with today's technology. And if you look at uh, the online capabilities of Microsoft, Google, or Amazon, it's very easy to get those algorithms at your fingertips and just integrate them within a, a mobile app or even a bit of computer vision software that you're developing on a computer. With Respond, what's your, what's your vision with this? Where, where do you see this going over the next five to 10 years? See, I see this as a bit of a springboard because you can use this app and it'll be fantastic for patients, but it's more about the data that you can get from this app. So if you would take all of the images that a regular user is taking, you've suddenly got an idea of the objects that they're most struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis. So you know if they're taking 100 pictures of a phone a day, they probably need some more reassurance or some um, or some work on that particular object and what it does, which is what a nurse or a carer could do. But that works on a on a very much on a personal level. But for the population as a whole, you could then see all of those images and work out any similarities there are between them. So a real simple example would be that if ninety percent of the images analysed had the colour blue in you can then link that wavelength of light to how that's perceived by the brain and how that's then linked to dementia. And as far as I'm aware, no data set exists like it out there at the minute. And although that is a simple example, um, it doesn't take too much of an imagination to suddenly realize um, that you'd be able to analyze exactly what triggers that memory loss. And it could be that it's on a patient by patient basis. But if there are links in the future, it could really help with the research that's going on behind it. And it's all, all linking back to what we were talking about earlier, which is picking up the earliest signs of dementia possible so that you can then try and streamline the care and implement strategies that prevent people from deteriorating to a point where they need excessive amounts of care, which then is costing health providers, families a significant amount of money, right? Absolutely. And when you look at the Alzheimer's and dementia space as a whole, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about an Alzheimer's vaccine or a potential cure in the future. But it's something that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of testing. And for the time being, at the very least, we can use technology because it seems far more advanced than people realise 
to help these patients on a day-to-day basis now as against 10 years in the future. With your journey uh, that we've, we've talked a little bit about already, what have been some of the, the biggest, I suppose, challenges on the non-technical side of things? Were, what have you seen that, that's been sort of a blocker to you scaling this out to more people? I think probably a year ago when I was first building the MVP, understanding business and also healthcare as a whole was incredibly difficult for me. It's not my background at all as I come purely from robotics, artificial intelligence. And it's really where you guys have helped me more than anything at HS. When I first started moving to London, uh, you guys said to me, okay, you need to go to these networking events and speak to these people and maybe form these sorts of partnerships. And over the course of three to six months, you can very quickly get an understanding of it. So I'd say that was the major blocker was an understanding of the system as a whole. But it's, it's something that you can quickly get a grasp of if you're put in touch with the right people, as you guys have done for me. James and I's favourite parts of when we were doing our initial sort of onboarding for the first cohort, obviously, we try and make sure that everyone has weekly metrics that, that we're tracking and that they're growing at around about, uh, you know, 10, if not more percent, whatever those metrics are per week to show growth and productivity. And when we sat down with you on one of the uh, the earliest, I think probably the first kickoff sessions, we said, what's your metric for this week? And you said, I've just moved down to London. I need to find a house to live. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I remember that. I was uh, sleeping on my brother's sofa, who at the time was living in a university house. So trying to uh, juggle my day-to-day job and trying to build this business up as well <laughs> past staying on something <laughs> was it was fun it was fun now you've also got quite an interesting uh background in that when you were building this uh, the app and getting it up off the ground you had a job at the same time and that job was in a completely different industry do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah of course so my day-to-day job is working for a company called streamwood which is a fashion technology company Again, working in machine vision and artificial intelligence, but you're really selling um, kind of the efficiency gains to retailers that you can get from these sorts of technologies uh, to retailers. And I'm working remotely from them, from their head office in India, um, in the UK as well. And what sort of parallels have you seen uh, or or things you've learned from, from working in such a completely different sector to healthcare? I'd say that both are advancing incredibly quickly. So when you look at the UK as a whole, it's quick. It's just opened up a fashion district that is aiming to be like what Canary Wharf is to finance. Uh, this fashion district in the east of London aims to be uh, for fashion. And I think it's going the same way in healthcare in that the UK is really starting to invest in innovation, particularly within the NHS, and starting to realise that it can... Um, make changes incredibly quickly um, if the right minds are put together and investments made. For someone operating in the computer vision uh, world, AI world, fashion is a a really interesting industry to, I guess, you know, hone your skills and carve your craft because um, one of my companies, which which uses computer vision as well, one of our uh, augmented reality developers created a uh, dressing room mirror uh, which was used quite extensively uh, in India uh, in, in a sort of Indian version of Amazon to allow people to select and try on clothes and size up clothes before actually making a purchase. And it's really, really interesting looking at that 
industry as a whole and the type of talent that it attracts. I mean, you must have met some absolutely amazing companies and, and uses of the technology within fashion, right? It's quite bizarre because when you mention that example, you can suddenly draw a parallel between somebody doing um, scanning of a, somebody's body using this uh, kind of magic mirror almost and trying on clothing. And then you compare that to kind of MRI scanners, CT scanners, where again, you're doing kind of 3D mapping of either the brain or the body as a whole. So you can really start to see kind of where technology is going um, across industry there. Well, these two industries are combining as well. So kind of wearables cross over to fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, mirrors, omnipresence, kind of monitoring. So you can have a, a mirror that monitors your skin so it can tell you if you have a problem that day. And um, there's, there's starting to be a real crossover of industry in the sector. And I, th I think, you know, even uh, stretching it to the sort of public health facing stuff, if you look at things like Instagram, uh, which obviously started off as, as just a way to share photos online and has now turned into its own advertising platform um, after being acquired by Facebook. It's, it's very interesting looking at the, the public and, and retail facing components of that. So obviously, uh, visual marketing is incredibly powerful for the fashion industry. So uh, big brands or, or in fact, small challenger brands uh, with anything from, you know, watches is a great example, shoes, any sort of fashion accessory can can develop a really strong brand presence using either video or uh, photos on Instagram. And in healthcare, we're seeing significant changes in the way that people look after themselves and um, significant you know, behavioral changes based on what people look like and food blogs, which have transitioned to Instagram. So it's, it's really, really interesting, the power that, that the visual nature of things like fashion and things like uh, visual marketing have on the population as a whole. You see it um, almost starting off with the fitness industry, I think it's the healthcare, and now branching more into kind of what you'd see as more kind of stereotypical healthcare, I'd say. From your experience within fashion at the moment, what are what are some of the, the newer trends that you've sort of spotted recently? Within technology or just clothing as a whole? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever takes your fancy. Let's go over technology. I'd say it's more about the efficiency gains that artificial intelligence can give you. So I was chatting with a head of e-commerce at a really big retailer the other week, and she had got a new graduate to... Uh, look at all of their competitors, so kind of Topshop or H&M, and find out the average pricing of jeans uh, for that week. Uh, apparently, this graduate just looked at her and almost silently screamed at the fact that she had to do this within a day. And if you think that one person trying to do all of that is just, it's a monumental task. Whereas if you have artificial intelligence, you're able to kind of analyze that data and more within seconds. And I think it's really about the efficiency gains that you can get from that. And it's kind of leading on from that and almost it goes hand in hand is that that graduate is now not having to sit there and just kind of manually troll through data. She can be retasked and do something absolutely fantastic like be designing those clothes instead and do something meaningful. And I think that's the same with uh, healthcare in particular. When you look at... Um, kind of a few businesses out there that are able to handle a lot of data purely through using AI. It means that doctors haven't got as huge a workload to do. 
and I, th- I think as well the the type of data and what you can apply that data to uh, also becomes very very broad so we have had a number of companies that we've either reviewed or, or pitched to hs looking uh, at clothing um, and discerning things like either body mass mass index or trying to look at some health variables for either big corporates uh, or in fact you know the nhs on uh, uniform orders for hospitals and things like that to try and discern if there are any sort of body habitus changes between employees and if they can map things like simply the clothes they wear to health and to progression of good health through weight loss or things like that. Yeah. So, so it's, it's really, really interesting that once you do have, as you said earlier, those big data sets, just what you can apply those to. And I think the thing that people have to be careful about, and we touched on this on our previous podcast with the guys at Febris, is that if that data isn't, either structured or valuable are are the the data points you're you're pulling out and extrapolating actually going to be solving a problem which is obviously what we bring everything back to at hs are you actually solving the problem for patients that providers are going to buy i think it's an incredibly good point it's becoming a little bit less and less relevant to actually have completely structured data nlp or natural language processing which is being able to get context from a document and being able to understand a sentence, again, using deep learning. And I think it's Microsoft that are doing something along these lines and being able to analyze lots and lots of scientific journals and lots of different types of data very, very quickly, even when it's unstructured. I think, although that's still very much in its early stages, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to have systems in place that are able to handle unstructured data. Yeah, uh, the natural language process is really interesting. I mean, one of my other companies that's in the education space um, is using uh, NLP uh, around sort of voice um, as well, uh, pulling out uh, key bits of information from textbooks and then putting it through voice apps, which is really interesting. I think, and again, similar to what you, I know, have been doing with your images and computer vision algorithm, you do have to train that. So there is always going to be an element when you're starting up of training that algorithm by saying exactly what is in NLP an invocation, what is uh, an output. Um, and, and that does take some time to do in order to get it as accurate as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the training set is incredibly important just to kind of, when you're starting to build that algorithm, um, it's all kind of, it's all focused on that input data set and how you train it to start off with. Because that's how it's going to behave for the rest of its effective lifetime until you start to retrain it again. And I know just on the training point, you've used some relatively innovative methods to try and scale up how you've trained uh, your, your images, haven't you? Yes. So I think that the capabilities, again, that kind of those big three have of Microsoft, Google and Amazon is that they have the ability to provide training sets of data and be able to have algorithms that are already um, effectively pre-trained for you. I think being able to utilize those really cuts down your workload uh, very, very quickly. And it means that the the data that you have provided to you um, is so much larger and effectively better than you'd be able to get on your own or even as a small business. And you were using Facebook Messenger as well at one point where you to do something? Yeah, of course, uh, at one stage, uh, we were looking at kind of building up a Facebook bot uh, that would be able to handle 
um, different image requests and kind of relay what it is back to the user, almost as like a testing phase back uh, for Respond as an app that would be standalone. One of the things that we're very passionate about at HS, but we've touched on, I think, on almost every single podcast we've done so far, is uh, in, in creating something that patients love, behavioral change and the user experience and uh, UI is incredibly important. Now, we've seen your app, but um, for the benefit of listeners, why don't you just sort of give a brief overview of, of how you designed it and what it sort of looks like in practice to, to enable people in those early stages of dementia to actually use it? Yes. So, as you say, it is absolutely paramount, especially within the dementia space or elderly care, that the user interface is incredibly simple. So, for example, kind of an 80 year old may not know how to use a drop down menu. They may not know that a scroll bar exists on the side of the page. So you can't use the day-to-day -day functionality that we're almost familiar with. And I spent a lot of time developing different UIs and kind of trialing them so that the end experience is as simple as possible. So things like matching the colors um, from one piece of functionality to another, um, and then also having huge fonts that are easy to read that don't have kind of serifs on them or anything like that. So as you say, that end user experience is absolutely paramount. And I think that when people start to realize how complex these technologies are, you need to have those simple user, user interfaces that go alongside them. Otherwise they're just unusable. And from there on in, I would have thought a business would fail really because they're just, people wouldn't be able to have that accessibility. And um, what sort of things for patients with uh, the early stage of dementia? Obviously, one of the the key things with with your app is that it's it's an app, it's phone based. What are some of the thoughts and challenges you've had around, I suppose, getting people to to use the app, and especially for patients when their dementia progresses, how are you going to make sure that they continue to use the app, um, or or can they? I think at the early stages, the the functionality almost sells it as um, sells itself almost so being able to speak to support groups and then charities from there on in really kind of brings about awareness of it more than anything but going into the later stages it's something that will be used less but could be used hand in hand with a carer so they could use it for language rehabilitation and kind of being able to recognize an object and have it spoken back to them and then being able to practice that word I think that's something that could work really, really well. And then almost the gamification of the app as well. So being able to have an interface that says to you, um, go and find me a kettle or go and find me a mug. And then that patient can then kind of look around and try and find it and take photos of different items and being able to gain almost experience based off that. I think that's how it will work with the, the later stages but it is primarily aimed um, at that earlier stage where they have kind of that day-to-day -day functionality there. It's just that they need that little bit more of a helping hand. And I think the gamification element's really interesting because then you're, you're moving into that sweet spot of um, people who are, who are getting around the, the risk area uh, of, of um, early stages of dementia. And you can look at doing things like brain training, um, or even 
just trying to pick up any sort of very, very subtle signs of dementia, cognitive impairment, memory loss at the earliest stage possible. Absolutely. And there's been quite a few successful apps that have been able to do that. And that's also been able to help the um, kind of the wider population with research into dementia and Alzheimer's and really being able to understand what the population of um, rather the dementia population as a whole is struggling with. Apple have been buying up augmented reality companies, lens manufacturers, computer vision companies uh, at pretty rapid pace over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. Is that, is that something that you see uh, being a, an applicable use case of Respondi looking at moving into uh, sort of the uh, the uh, eyewear space uh, to have sort of a heads up display for people with dementia? Absolutely. So when I first started getting the ideas together for this particular app, at the time, Google Glasses were all the range. Everybody was raving about them. I think it's taken a fair few years for them to almost perfect that product, and it's still going on now. So if there was an uptake um, with smart glasses or heads-up displays, something like that, it's an area that I'd really like to branch out into because it was almost the the starting point or the inspiration for the app as a whole is being able to have these glasses on that not only help your eyesight, but you'd be able to move around the room and recognise everybody that's in there and have almost um, a point to them and say, oh, yeah, this is Callum, he's your grandson, something like that. On the podcast last week, a little bit around some of the ethics and governance of things like AI, what sort of things have you had to take into consideration, especially when you're doing things like facial recognition? I mean, that all kind of pins on GDPR more than anything. Those four letters that everybody absolutely hates at the minute. And making sure that all of the data kind of never leaves somebody's phone is very important. For object detection, it's something that you need to use online um, tools for. And making sure that those images remain kind of private between whoever supplies them and then whoever processes them is incredibly important. And specifically with faces, again, you've got to just make sure that they do remain private and they aren't shared in any way, shape or form. One thing that I think is quite interesting is that, you know, how you just said GDPR is, you know, those four letters that everyone hates. I think that is true for for the startup community at the moment because, (laughs) I mean, startups have got enough to do um without you know having especially with healthcare startups you know the the data that the healthcare startups are handling is highly sensitive data and so it's it's been super relevant for those for all those startups to um fall in line which has slowed a lot of people down in what they were doing but ultimately yeah you know we know the benefits of it but um it's just interesting that you highlight it as as something that definitely has um made you stand up and yeah fall in line but also probably slow you down a little bit oh it's it's absolutely imperative that everybody does it. It's more a case of that um, it is a lot of work to do for a small startup. Uh, yeah. But it does mean, though, that it benefits everyone as a whole. Um, and you, you start to see all these news stories of kind of Facebook losing all of their data and being hacked, and the same with uh, British Airways as well. And you start to see how incredibly crucial it actually is. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's what Alina said last week as well on the podcast, um, is that you, you look at examples like that of the Facebooks and, and, and things and you can absolutely see the need for it and you can see why all that regulation needs to happen. Um, it is just 
quite frustrating when you've got a backtrack as a startup that's been doing this for a little while and, and go back and redo your processes. Um, so we're coming to the end of the podcast now. What I think, why don't you paint us sort of the big vision? Why don't send us sort of 20 years ahead with yourself, with Respond and with computer vision in healthcare and just sort of paint us the picture of what the future looks like? So I think over the next 20 years, artificial intelligence is going to play a huge role uh, within how the NHS, just within the UK, starts to innovate and adapt its solutions to care for patients on a day-to-day basis. I think almost that automation of certain processes will be crucial in not only helping patients, but also helping kind of staff around hospitals and GPs being able to handle data um, and also to be able to help patients with the medication, the day-to-day care, um, and also how they're cared for at home. It could mean that uh, patients will start to spend more of their time at home and have that independence, but are able to access solutions that just aren't available to us today. Very good. And you're currently raising a, a pre-seed round at the moment, aren't you? So you're looking for angel investors uh, who have a background in healthcare and preferably have a passion for helping people with dementia or the early stages of dementia in particular. Absolutely. Yes. And then we, we finish up the podcast normally by uh, handing back over to you. So why don't you just finish up by telling uh, everyone again, just your, you know, your, your two second snapshot of what Respond does um, and then where they can get in contact with you. Absolutely. So Respond is an artificially intelligent app to help dementia patients using machine vision and deep learning. You can find out more on the website, which is respondapp.co. Or you can get in contact with me on uh, Callum at respondapp.co. And again, you can get in contact through all the different types of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, again, just search for Respond and you'll be able to find my contact details there.